welcome to episode four, season two of Something to Eat and Something to Read, a podcast by me, Jermaine Lees, bibliotherapist and psychotherapist, and food writer Sophie Hansen. It's a podcast where we talk about everything to do with reading and eating and reading about eating. And today we're actually coming from Sophie's farm in Orange, so arms with gin and tonics. We're here <laughs> to talk about the year of miracles. Hello, Sophie, I should say, Hi. before I ask you to go into the synopsis. <laughs> I love it. It's so exciting that you're here. We're sitting at our dining table. We've got some nibbles, a gin and tonic, and the sun's coming through. Mm. And it's just so nice to be here in person talking to you. A very quick thank you so much to our subscribers at Something to Eat and Something to Read. We are so grateful mm. to your support and we just love seeing our community growing with every episode. So thank you so much if you have signed up and if you're thinking about it, you can click on the show notes and go and find us. Yes, yeah, so today we are talking about a book that I adore, by a writer that I adore, mm. Ella Bridger, who also wrote uh, Midnight Chicken which is another fabulous book. Uh, it's called Midnight Chicken and Recipes Worth Living For. And this one is The Year of Miracles, Recipes About Love, Grief and Growing Things. So I'll give you a quick synopsis and then we're going to chat about the book and the shape it left on us and then we've got our letter and we're going to prescribe some things to read and cook as always. <laughs> okay, this book is a memoir told through a year of recipes. It's about grief and love and friendship and it's also unfolds throughout the pandemic mm. although she never actually refers to the pandemic she calls it a, an a, apocalypse. apocalypse yeah I thought that was actually really clever it was very obvious what was happening but it was never actually referred to which there is a bit of um pandemic um, exhaustion isn't there yeah in, in books as well and I was talking to someone else about that the other day who is annoyed that a book ended with the start of the pandemic and mm. it's really interesting watching how authors are starting to have to incorporate the pandemic into their work yeah. and the different ways they're doing it given that she'd gone through her own version of hell um, mm. it was interesting how she then talked about the apocalypse side of the pandemic yeah. yeah and I think that the way she deals with it in the book you could read it that it was just her own personal apocalypse in terms mm. of her what she'd gone through with her with her come to this her partner dying and her her mental health and all sorts of things mm. so I think it's quite clever to leave it a bit open like that because also we're still so close to it aren't we we're still all processing what it meant to us and our yes. families in the world. So it's yeah. the shadow of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Midnight Chicken was her first book, which she wrote. She's still quite young. I think she's early 30s or late 20s. It was written in her mid-20s, I think, mostly about how she cooked her way through suicidal depression and the power of food and the making of food to remind you life is mm. worth living, yeah. moments worth living for. But at the time of writing, her partner was very ill. Between her submitting the manuscript and the book coming out, he passed away from a rare lymphoma. Mm. Um, so she has been through an extraordinary amount at such a young age. So this book, The Year of Miracles, begins in the thick of that grief and it moves through its many incarnations and it celebrates friendship, it navigates lockdown and then new love and all through food and cooking and growing and yes. she really falls in love with gardening throughout this book. And it's also a book full of metaphors and I guess that metaphor <laughs> yes. is a pretty sort of, is we, one that we can all kind of latch onto quite easily, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting actually because during the pandemic it became all about gardening too didn't it? and growing mm. things and which is again similar to 
working your way through or transforming your way through some kind of massive grief or yeah. change. Yeah. Both her books are illustrated by Alyssa Cunningham and we were just chatting about this and mm-hmm. how an illustrated cookbook is quite a different thing and in, in a way it takes a little bit of pressure off the reader, doesn't it, because you don't see this perfectly plated, styled, lit food scene and think, oh, my God, I can't possibly recreate that. <laughs> Yeah, although actually, and I can't remember now where I read this, but I recently read an article, I feel like I just read it today as well, anyway, which said that they've now shown that seeing photos of food porn is a real thing, mm. that, that something changes in your brain when you see photos of delicious looking food. This book is not meant to be about delicious looking food, is it? No. I mean, or, you know, it's delicious food or whatever, but uh, it, it's so much more them making the food it's really mm. the shape actually it's a book it's a book about the shape meals leave on us isn't it 100 percent. Mm. yeah it is the illustrations are so whimsical and yeah cheery aren't they they are they're, they're actually it's a bit like a picture book isn't it that's some of those mm. illustrations remind me of a lovely children's book where you can yes imagine the kitchen uh, the kitchen windowsill with the potted geraniums and the, oh yeah. they're just beautiful i i Googled Alyssa Cunningham and, and I, I really love her work so I've been following along with her. But So the shape that it left on me, I suggested this book, this was my one, and having already read and loved Midnight Chicken, I knew I was going to enjoy this one because I just I really love Ella's writing. Essentially, I think it's about 65 recipes in the book and they're all divided up into months of the year and each recipe comes wrapped in a short story essentially. Mm. And you may or may not cook any of them. I certainly will and I already have, but that's not really the point, I think. Through every recipe, Ella has this beautiful, reassuring way of reminding us to just make do with what we have, fudge Mm. it when you need to. And I've listened to her in podcasts explain how she is not a trained cook, she's not a chef, she was first and foremost a writer like Nigella, like like Nigel Slater. So when there's a workaround, when there's a shortcut, she takes it because she doesn't know the long way, you know, or she doesn't know that sort of, in her words, the proper way to, to do these things. And so for a home cook, I think it's incredibly achievable and yeah. um, mm. readable so she writes in the interstru- in the introduction do your best with what you have and it will probably be fine it will probably be fine in the end and <laughs> I love that and we've talked quite a lot in this podcast about you know kitchen disasters and Laurie Collins home cooking and Ella actually is a big fan of hers as well and you know that idea of the stakes are generally not super high it's okay if it doesn't always work out you're learning every time and that's what I love so much about this book. Although I can imagine our friend Elizabeth Zott from last episode, <laughs> one of our lessons in chemistry, she would be just having conniptions, I think, about well, the slapdash recipes in some of them. Yes, it's the complete opposite. Actually, Ella is the complete opposite of Elizabeth, isn't she? She's. I think I read somewhere that she said cooking for her is like solving a puzzle. Um, yes, I'd also read that she wasn't a good cook, but thinking through flavours and pairings, wrote about chopping and dicing acted as an antidepressant. Then she talks about how the supermarket became therapy for her, that she found it soothing um, to look at neat rows of possibilities with minimal consequences, a safe way to practice decision-making. But mm. that was a really lovely way to think about trying to take charge of your life again through just trying to choose which spices to buy possibly. And yes. whereas for Elizabeth, cooking was all about the empowerment and education uh, chemistry <laughs> and chemistry yes that's right the, the technical side I think for Ella it was a way to connect herself back mm. to herself and also to others and it was a way to sort of 
as she said, it wasn't a cure for her anxiety, but it was a way to live through it, which I mm. thought was a really lovely way to look at living with anxiety or depression. Definitely. And she refers, I think in the book, or I think it was in a podcast I listened to, to um, Heartburn, which is a book yes. that we both love, episode one. And when she talks somewhere in the book about uh, making a white sauce and the comfort of knowing that if you melt butter and stir in flour and then gradually add milk, mm, the sauce will thicken right. and you know it will thicken and it will become a white sauce. Yeah. And there is this beautiful comfort in that, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, there's rules. This known outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess life, especially life with anxiety, there are known outcomes always guaranteed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or ever. This book is just such a pleasure to read. Her writing speaks to me well I I just enjoy reading how she puts her feelings down on the page Mm. how she describes food and tastes and actually she's a wonderful cook and I've cooked many of her recipes and they're great I'm not downplaying the the quality of the recipes in the book it's just a different approach to the writing and she sometimes even writes recipes she admits they don't even have to be made you know the thinking about them and the reading of them is soothing enough so she she writes the introduction for a fish pie recipe and, and she writes Thinking about fish pie is always soothing, and as I plan it through my mind, I feel better already. Think about buttery mashed potato crisped under the grill until brown. The cheese on top bubbling. Think about soft white fish flaking off the fork. Think about tender morsels of salmon and the tiny little treat of a prawn. Think about the green wisps of spinach and tendrils of leek twirled around a fork and rich, savourily white sauce. Think about how much better you'll feel for a good meal. Think nourishing, think soothing, think safe. It's a commitment, this. Just thinking it through is good and eating it is better. Do you make yeah. fish pie ever? I do, actually. I have a favourite fish pie recipe. It's actually a Jamie Oliver one. Mm. That was one recipe in there that I've earmarked for trying Yeah, version. Yeah. I love that because just reading that yes. soothes me. Yeah. And I can imagine myself, I can imagine the feel of the knife in my hand. So, you know, you may not cook all of these recipes, yeah. but it's the reading of them I think is in, intensely Soothing. Grounding. Yes. I think it takes us back to grounding, doesn't it? That idea of using, being totally in the moment mm. and the way it's written in the present like that, I think also it helps put you there. Yes. And it reminded me actually of therapy. Therapy is all about working through mm. and thinking things through together with someone. And I thought the way that she's suggesting that a recipe can do the same thing or it can calm you down because you need to think things through that mm. they can't be blown out of proportion or they can't be there's something quite calming about actually having to put yourself into the moment and think it through oh definitely and when recipes take a lot of the time her recipes are quite short and you know the three ingredient yes. brownie that we have both tried <laughs> and loved but there is one for a yuzu meringue bar which I'm absolutely going to make and the story around that was I think was a picnic they had towards the end of lockdown when yes. the social distancing was sort of relaxed a bit and they could bit sit in the park on their and see their picnic friends rugs again. And yeah. It's just it's beautifully drawn scene. But she talks about these meringue bars and she said it's worth it. It's worth it partly because they're delicious, but partly the faff is part of it. Each moment you spend is a perfect moment, still and calm and interesting. And food historian B. Wilson wrote an article a few years ago, which I'll link in the show notes for the New Yorker. And I love it and I think about it often about the pleasure of just reading recipes mm. rather than cooking them or both. <laughs> and she writes, recipes have a story arc. You need to get through the tricky early prepping stages via complications of heat and measuring before you arrive at the point of happy closure when the dish goes in the oven or is sliced and served. 
And I love that idea of a recipe having a story arc. And I'm writing a cookbook right now. Mm. And I was writing a recipe this morning, actually. I was like, of course they have a story. There's a beginning, a middle and an end. Yeah. And it's a complete little package. Hopefully. It's, yeah. Well, it's. I found that really interesting as well, particularly after we talked about the language of food mm. and recipes being poetry or little poems. I find I've usually find myself getting quite overwhelmed with very traditional recipe books and which aren't really for the home cook I get or you know um, just much more technical much more Elizabeth style and I think it's actually because they have absolutely no narrative around them and so I find it really hard to picture this the story arc that Mm. that B Wilson describes there and I remember having a number of bibliotherapy clients tell me how they would take cookbooks to bed they'd read cookbooks in bed and I really had never thought about that before doing it and and I wonder if it's the thinking through that they particularly enjoyed. I know you're a fan of reading cookbooks in bed, mm-hmm. but I could take Ella's book to bed because I loved how the recipes were so filled with that context. And the story arc for me was actually a whole story around the recipe and the shape of the recipe and, you know, who she was with, what the kitchen looked like when she cooked it, the conversation before she went to the pantry to find those ingredients like that um, brownie recipe that we've, Mm-hmm. all both done which has three ingredients the story behind how that evolved because it was really late at night and the friend said can't you make me brownies mm-hmm. and there was just Nutella in the cupboard or whatever then the fact that she made them again because they could have a walk together a socially distant walk I think that's what made me actually then go and cook those um, yeah. brownies just this whole this is something about the the love and the emotion that was in those brownies and so again, it's it's character for me, isn't it? When mm. it comes to oh, stories, it's always character for me. I just definitely, and there are that many. I mean, we're looking in my, at my bookshelf full of cookbooks, mm. and most of them I love. And the ones that I, I mean, I love them all because they're mine. But the ones I love the most are the ones where what's called the head note, you know, the introduction to the recipe, oh, tells yep. a little story. When I open a cookbook for the first time, and the head notes are just like one sentence saying, you know, here's a variation, or whatever. I'm out. Like right, I'm just so in interested. case it doesn't work for you either. No, I want to be taken somewhere. I want to be told a story. I want to be given a reason to cook this thing right. uh-huh. within some sort of context. And that's why this book, which is sort of mostly head note and then recipe, yes. speaks so much to me, I yeah. guess. Yeah, okay. And mm. that's why it speaks so much to me too, thinking yeah. about it. Because at one point in the middle of it, I did find myself skipping over some recipes mm. to try and get back to the story of what was happening in her life at the time. And then I got to the chicken soup recipe which she writes um, in second person with you rummage through the fridge, find an onion and a bending carrot, and and then you take this pot and then you put the kettle on to make yourself a cup of tea while it's simmering away. And it just really grabbed me, the the style of how she wrote it. And uh, it reminded me actually of my favourite short story, which I think I've told you about before. Um, it's from Helen Simpson's collection, Cockbusters. Oh, yes. You um, did mention that in a previous episode. Yeah, I, I think which one, so. Yeah, so it's a it's a short and it's literally a fiction. It's a book of fictional short stories. But one short story is a style. There's a recipe for a lemon drizzle cake, and it's written as this love letter to this fictional daughter. Oh, yes, I remember. Filled with memories of her childhood, and as the mother sifts the flour or beats the eggs and butter, and she talks about you know these memories of her daughter throughout childhood. And yeah, there's something that I think she does really well, which is in real life, these shapes of the meal, like, leaves on us. Um, there's that other one, what did you think of the jacket potato soup, that that yes. story? that was a great story. 
Uh, and actually, I really want to make that now. Yeah, too. it's really, it got me quite curious, loving mm. the jacket potato. But again, this idea that these periods of her life where she said she would go to this cafe when she couldn't talk to her friends, she was in so much pain, and she'd go to this cafe and cry and then order this soup and the barista would always just be really gentle and ask lovely questions and she'd go there every day and then she stopped going and she's never been back and yet it was such an important moment, mm. um, which is what this book is, isn't it, a collection of moments, that mm. it needed to be commemorated in this book. And I mm. thought, well, the food stays in my head then when there's this whole backstory to it, I think. And that's what makes any recipe, whether it's something you read in a book or that's uh, something that someone in your family has made and yeah. passed on to you special because there are, you know, there are that many potato soup recipes. You could just Google it yes. on taste.com or whatever. Nothing wrong with taste.com. But, <laughs> you know, a, re- a recipe with a, a hook that's emotional yeah. for you. And it actually makes me think of Sarah Winman in our, who mm. wrote Still Life and when we did that interview with her a while ago and her big thing you know she says food is emotion it's emotion and memory yeah and that's what makes it something worth talking about so much I think because it's how we tell our stories and how we share ourselves yes and I think that's what this book does so beautifully in any good cookbook in my mind yes um yeah brings a bit of emotion into it so yeah and I thought it leads me to my last point I have about the shape it left on me is about how how she her cooking changes as she moves through her grief. Yeah. And and that's, you know, talk about food being emotional. And she writes how she stopped making roast dinners because she actually never really liked mm. them, but the, she calls him tall man, her yeah. partner who died. He loved them, so she made them. But now she makes brothy soups and stuff for yeah. veggies and cardamom buns. Um mm. or they, or she just has marzipan cookies for dinner because she can. Um <laughs> And it's not being flippant. I mean, she she's the grief is so incredibly real, but she's also moving through that understanding of I don't have to make these things anymore. Yes. And and coming out of that role as carer and monitoring his diet and his food twenty four seven. And it reminded me a bit of Crying in H Mart, where Michelle mm. Zana, her relationship to food changes quite a lot after her mum passes away or her mum dies. Yeah, and how she turned to cooking to fill a sort of space. Yes. What do you think about I, that therapist? <laughs> Well, yeah, I do agree that cooking is, well, this book and Crying in H Mart was all about how cooking was kind of a way of bringing back the dead mm. and a way of moving through grief. But I think, um, well, Michelle's book, it was trying to bring back her mum to kind of, she was, that book felt so much um, moored in the midst of really acute grief. Mm. And whereas with Ella's book, she's cooking as a way of letting him go as well, isn't she? Like I oh, love. That's true, yeah. But she writes, my ghost would have hated this dinner. And now I get to cook things he would have hated. This is how you keep someone alive. This is how you live with a ghost. You argue, you talk, you live fully and properly, and you make things you never would have made for them because life goes on and that's all there is to it. She kind of fills the space he left in a very different way, in a way of moving through, Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, cooking is such a tangible reaction to emotion. As we said last time, you... You don't always know what to say or how to feel or how to react, but picking up a knife and chopping an onion or making that white sauce from heartburn, yeah, something you can actually do, isn't it, while your brain's just to quiet your brain down perhaps. Yes, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I loved how she wrote about grabbing joy. Uh, One of the things she says is grief comes upon you so quickly and unexpectedly that you want to take your delights where you can, you see, and this is one of the simplest ways I know an afternoon spent in the kitchen. And I also loved how she, talking about cooking using food for emotion, but she uses the smells 
for um, coping with difficult emotion and she starts getting quite anxious again towards the end of the book and she says it's easier to be afraid in a house that's heavy with ginger and spices mm. and colour. Is that when she's doing the, the beans, the furious beans, I think she called oh, them? They, that, yeah, that was when she had her first argument. That was oh, the beginning yeah. of saying to feel afraid. Yes, yeah. yeah. She uses colour as well, like when she talked about the morning um, furious exo-stir-fried beans yeah <laughs> that was the first that was when it all became a bit too real that she was falling in love again yes and she was and it was too dangerous yeah because what could happen again yeah mm. i love the color when she talks about color of food that story that she tells about middle eastern spices and things because that grief needed to be fed with flavour and spices and texture and colour, that some pain has to be lived with in full and glorious technicolour. And, again, I thought it was a really interesting way to think about grief, that you've got to mark it, show you've been somehow changed. Mm. And she said that as she watched him dying and um, and when he first died, everything was grey and dark and and then there still needs to be this recognition of this huge change it, can't, it couldn't no longer be black for her. And so then it became about painting her pain in very colourful food and um, in the garden maybe as well. And maybe, yeah. And... and she bought a gold bikini, a gold oh, yeah. sequin bikini and painted her nails a vivid tanjo orange. Oh, very different beautiful. way of thinking about the senses, isn't it? Mm. And it's such a, I love how cooking for her is such a social activity. So a lot of people for them, they would just like, kick everyone out and just be on their own in their own quiet space in the kitchen and I feel like that sometimes but generally the kitchen is the funnest place to be you know whenever you're in a house full of people it's always happening there and and she's always making the point that mealtimes and cooking are social occasions and every single recipe is grounded in a person or a feeling yes about a person or a reaction to a person's actions and I think we have this example of it all cooking being yes obviously about the food but more around eating of the food and the sharing and who you're with and how you feel. And I think that's why cooking for people is mm. such a special thing. And it doesn't have to always be candles and linen napkins. It can be, you know, dinner in the park or a bowl of soup on the couch. Mm. Or takeaway. Yeah. Or takeaway. Yeah, have the just... recipe book with takeaway. Well, yeah, I mean, the point really is the sharing of yeah. the food, isn't it? And, you know, I've said this before, you know, if I asked you to tell me your the best meal of your life, You'd probably tell me who you ate it with and where you were and how you felt. And the yeah. food would be a part of the story, but it wouldn't be the only part or possibly even the most important part of yeah, the story. It was how you were true. feeling at that time. Mm. And I think it's it's important. And, and, and when we tap into that, maybe we take a little bit of the pressure off because I have mm. so many clever friends who feel anxious about cooking and they're running companies and all sorts of things. No, no, just in general. Like I'm like, oh, my God, you could just... Get a takeaway chicken and buy a tabbouleh and put it like it's yeah, it's about the sharing together. and so I think if we can sort of take that pressure off ourselves and just remember that it's actually how about it's it's how people at the table are feeling and the chat and the music and all that sort of stuff. I mean, obviously, I think cooking is a wonderful thing, but maybe taking the pressure off and just realizing it's about the occasion. Yes, yeah, I like that too. And it's this book I just add so much more than the recipe book, isn't it? So mm. as she says in the beginning, all cookbooks are love stories. Yeah. Yes. I don't think I'd appreciated that as much until I read this. Whereas obviously I know you've obviously found that in many, many cookbooks. But mm. um this really was the first one that yeah, I literally thought, Oh, and I could take this to bed to read and mm. yeah. 
Um, okay, so the shape it left on you, is there anything? Yeah, well, just to... a couple of a couple of extra things I noticed because I always read the acknowledgements. I do love the acknowledgements pages. Again, maybe this is character driven because I try and know more about the person behind the book. And uh, in the acknowledgements, Ella thanks her therapist for helping her make unbridled trauma into a narratively satisfying cookbook. And um, (laughs) narratively satisfying. I like that. (laughs) Good story. Yeah. And that made me think of, um, again, I was made to think of the process of therapy. I thought it's always been beautifully said by the Danish author Karen Blixen, who said, All sorrows can be born if you put them into a story or tell a story about them. And I guess this is the shape the book left on me that it's a story about coming to terms with your story. And that, you know, these recipes really, as you've already said, basically, that just they personified the emotional journey and they illustrated an emotional experience that was about working through and transforming, like we've already said as well. I noticed the transformations in her emotions were echoed in the food she chose to cook. And I don't know if you noticed this, but did you see how many recipes use eggs or or mm. about eggs? Yeah, there are a lot of eggs. This is just me probably overanalyzing this, but I found that quite symbolic. And I found myself feeling quite filled with hope when I saw those egg recipes. And I thought, why is that? And I think it's because eggs are symbolised, well, they're the beginning of life, aren't they, and that new growth and fresh mm. starts. And I think I was also left thinking about Elizabeth Zott from Lessons in Chemistry, where, again, um, food symbolised possibility and new perspectives. And the way Ella writes about baking bread, <clears throat> bread is becoming, this is the real magic that everything changes and everything is always becoming something else. I think it's the shape I was left with was that by being in the moment, um, we become aware of those ingredients transforming in front of our eyes. And that's um, a reminder that when our emotions and pain are worked through, they also transform Mm. in front of our eyes. I love that. Yeah. And and when you look at the recipes, as we said before, there are so many metaphors Mm. in this book. And the very first recipe is the leftover pie. And she's packing up. You've got nothing left. Yeah. And she's packing up the flat. She lived, I think his name was Jim. That where she lived with Jim and she's packing it up and a friend is helping her and they want dinner and and there's like half a chicken left over and so she makes this pie with what she has yeah and it's you know this sort of gathering of these last scraps of that life oh, yeah. making something out of it before starting and afresh again, with yeah. something new and before having an egg I think the second recipe might be an egg one after that oh is it there's a lot of chicken obviously and yeah. the first book Midnight Chicken is. Yeah, a recipe which I have cooked and it is it's beautiful and it's just a roast chicken essentially but you mix um like mustard and ginger chili and lemon mix that like into a paste and rub it all over the chicken and then like roast it at really high heat so it kind of releases all these juices and it gets all crispy and it's beautiful yeah and that's the recipe that she said you know that made her want to live a game essentially yes um yeah and speaking of bread there's another recipe in that one called mother-in-law loaf which is one of the best breads i've Ah. ever made and it's dark it's got like cocoa powder and coffee and oh it's amazing um it's a really dense dense loaf but anyway yeah i i think that's how we all cook isn't it like what do i feel like yeah what does what does the person i love feel like what am i going to make which is why i'm hopeless at weekly recipe plan. I can't meal plan. That's why oh, I can't meal plan. No. And as you know, I don't live close to town, so sometimes we do just have eggs because, you know, you can't just decide, I feel like salmon tonight is not going to know any. Yeah, I can't meal plan. I just, to an extent, I mm. can, you know, but 
Um, you never really know what you're going to feel like, do no. you? Or what everyone else is going to feel like. Okay, so I think if we come to the end of our... I think we had, the only thing I was thinking of adding in was also um, that I read an article, an essay that Ella wrote called The Pain Writing Money Trifecta, where she compared oh, yes. writing your pain, um, she compared it with heartburn, which obviously piqued my interest because it's our very first book we discussed. And, you know, as we know that heartburn was based on a real story but written mm. as fiction. But that seemed to get Nora into a lot more hot water than if it was written as a memoir perhaps that uh, it was so sort of thinly veiled. And 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 because she was, then was in fiction, it was then not seen as art. So Ella sort of writes, explores this essay about, well, what, what is art and what is writing your pain and what is, you know, worth sharing or not. And she comes to this really interesting idea, the interesting what you think about it, where she decides that all fiction is autobiographical and all memoir is a fiction of a sort. All fiction. Well, I guess, yeah, I mean, you're writing from what you know, don't you? There's that classic write what you know and even subconsciously we're writing experiences that we've yeah. collected over the time and distilled into a new story or she says like she's um you have much more control over a memoir because you're create you're curating quite consciously what you want readers to know and see and hear about you mm. and then with fiction it all comes from the imagination and as you said it's unconscious a mm. lot of it and so it made me think about how I've often heard fiction writers interviewed and they say they write to, they they wrote the book to understand something they about themselves or something that didn't make sense to them and then the interviewer will bring, pick up threads of a theme and you'll hear the also go oh well I'd never <laughs> seen it that way and again it just reminded me very much like therapy which is all about trying to attempting to make the unconscious a bit more conscious and perhaps that's what fiction does for writers that you don't realize actually what you're exposing mm. whereas in a memoir there's this real constraint and perhaps there is a bit more fiction around it because you're very consciously shaping it and protecting people and well yes mm. yeah but she she said somewhere I can't remember where I read or, or heard her say this that at the same time that she was writing this one I think the year of miracles she had also had a deal to write a fiction like a novel oh yeah but that's, um, that's in this Nora article oh, so, so I must be, have read it mm. you sent it to me the other day and and she eventually when she finished actually the fiction the novel was too personal to share yeah gave away too much whereas this one she could, she felt she could. And actually she says how she changed the names of lots of her friends mm. in this so kind of protect them a little bit. So I thought that was really interesting. She um, is a big fan of Nora Ephron. And, yeah. and actually the way I first came across Ella and her work is through one of my favourite podcasts, Sentimental Garbage. Oh, yes. Yep. And she and Caroline O'Donoghue, who's the host of Sentimental Garbage, who's an Irish writer of young adult fiction, which sounds really fun. Anyway, they did a whole series of sentimental garbage together and where they go through all these sort of books that really shaped them. Mm. And one of them, which is one of my all-time favourite books, which is Brother of the More Famous Jack. Oh, yes. Which I loved. Anyway, but they did an episode on Nora Ephron and they talk a lot about heartburn. So we'll link that in there. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. I feel like we keep coming full circle with these these references. But uh, yeah, sentimental garbage is fabulous listening. And she's sort of part of this crew of cool young English writers I think like Kate Young who wrote the little library cookbook appears in the book and Dolly Alderton who wrote Ghost which I've talked about and everything I know about love also but but she's got a a, a pseudonym so I'm not quite sure which one's her but they're all kind of buddies and I think oh what a cool gang (laughs) 
cruising around they, London eating cardamom buds and that's right and the, swimming in the what do they call it the Lido that um yeah the pool the pool the serpentine is it the serpentine doesn't appeal to me actually that oh, pool. swimming in the that, river is it no Hampstead Heath Hampstead there's a oh, ladies yes, bath yes yeah but I think she's right, written um an essay about it, actually which I'll link in about the joys of swimming at the ladies bath oh. um and year round like they go oh my gosh mm. Dear Jermaine and Sophie, I have a dear friend who has spent the last few years going through a messy separation and divorce. She has four children and has been their primary carer throughout the endless days of homeschooling, but also since we re-emerged back into normal life with all its sport and other commitments. Her children have had minimal contact with her ex since they left, but have recently started sleeping over as part of the parenting agreement. Throughout the past two years, our friendship group has rallied and it's fair to say they've had their fill of hearty meals to satisfy little tummies and palates when everything got too much to cook. They may never eat lasagna or pasta <laughs> bake again. My lovely friend is deeply affected by stress and loses her appetite and weight quite rapidly when stress levels are high. And I know that this new phase in the parenting agreement is very hard on her. Whilst we as friends hope to be able to keep her company on those nights, she might feel very alone. It would also be wonderful to bring her some lovely, deeply nutritious meals or morsels that she can be tempted by when she has those nights to herself. She also used to be a fairly avid reader, but as you can imagine, hasn't had a lot of time or energy to give books lately and has got out of the habit. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to your podcast since the first episode, Nora and Hartben, <laughs> and appreciate your collective wisdom on a recommendation for something to eat and something to read that might help my friend pass gently into this phase and maybe even come out a little stronger with many thanks. Oh, what a beautiful friend. Mm. Mm. How thoughtful. Yeah, it's a lovely story of friendship. Our oh, friendships are so precious. And actually that's something that this book mm. really celebrates. I love I love yep. the celebration of platonic and, and romantic love, but I think it's nice to see it getting its due as well. Definitely. I love the way she talks about being in love with her friends, actually. Yes, yeah. I know. And Joe is just her complete touchstone, isn't yes. she? Yes. Well done you for being such a beautiful friend. And I yeah, thinking a lot about your your friend who's going through this time and I can't imagine how difficult that must be. And I guess when you're finally on your own mm. and the kids are with their dad, the thought of cooking up a whole big meal for yourself, you'd just probably just have toast, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. But you can't do that every night. So deeply nutritious meals or morsels that can be tempted that can tempt our friend when she has nights to herself. So what I'm thinking is, and I'm imagining that the letter writer is thinking they will make some of these meals for the friend and Yeah, it sounds her. like it, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or she can make them herself. But I've got three things and maybe you can kind of farm a couple of them out, which might sort of work together not just for one meal, but for some lunches and things as well. So the first thing I was thinking is one of the easiest things you can make, which is just chicken thighs, if you can get them with the bone in and skin on, even better. And you marinate them with like ginger, garlic, soy, miso, some sesame. 
put them in a baking tray with some wedges of um, sweet potato and then just mm. cook them on quite a high heat. So you've got this really, and it creates this delicious sauce as well. And then serve that with sort of limes and, and a rice. And the rice I'm suggesting is you make a lemony baked rice pilaf. So oh, nice. it's really yummy. And I actually just love this on its own. Like yeah. it's sort of a bit butter, you put a bit of butter in at the end and sort of the lemon, lemon sort of lifts it, makes it quite bright. But a little bit of that rice with one of these chicken thighs mm. and some sweet potato, maybe some coriander and a, a good squeeze of lime or mm. lemon is a really it's just bright and nourishing but not heavy you know I Lovely. think yeah. I would do a big tray of that and then you've got leftovers so the chicken you could sort of shred off mm. oh and on the side I would also say I'm going to share this recipe I've been working on it for a while and it was going to go in the new book but mm. I can't quite make it fit so it'll go here for a big flavor broccoli salad oh, and it's so yummy you just chop 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 like two heads of broccoli, quite small. You don't cook it and you make this insane dressing, which is I've been putting on everything now. It's just really, really lemony and olive oil and salt and pepper and but more lemon than you mm-hmm. think because the, the broccoli is raw, so the lemon kind of cooks it a little bit as it sits in the dressing. And then I put nuts and all sorts of things and spring onion. It's just delicious. Like I just – and because it's also chopped up, it's sort of spoon food. You yeah, can just eat this broccoli salad on its own. So those three things, the rice, the chicken, the broccoli salad, delicious yeah, meal, like mm. really yummy and healthy, gets all the senses going. But the broccoli salad is great for lunches. I yeah. often do a big thing on a Sunday and then, you know, you can toss a little bit of tuna through it, poached mm. egg. So I sort of thought those three things together is almost like four or five meals worth yeah. of de- various kind of combinations, combinations and variations and and I really want you to try the broccoli salad because I'm really proud of that one. It's oh, delicious. Yeah. I'm excited um, to think we're getting an original recipe that's oh, not yeah, actually going to be recipe. published anywhere else. <laughs> the other day I made it and I had some uh, risotto pasta that oh, I yum. stirred through mm-hmm. and that was really good and I put a bit more salad dressing in so it was kind of like a pasta broccoli salad. So I would say those three things and they're really easy. Like the, the palaf is just the easiest way to cook rice. Right. And actually, I haven't got a rice cooker, but I often just you do that because it sort of fluffs up so beautifully and you just put the lid on and forget yeah. about it. With I just do lemon, but you could put in some all sorts of herbs, a cinnamon stick you could put right. in, you could put in some garlic. I've done like just ginger grated in and stirred over. Oh, so nice. anyway, riff on it. I would also, if you want to kind of gild the lily, give her a little arsenal of pickles and ferments, maybe a few little jars, yeah. um, maybe a really good kimchi, some pink pickled onions, pickled radishes or cucumber, maybe a jar of toasted nuts. And all you need to do there is like get oh, some nice natural lily. cashew nuts um, drizzle over some tamari or soy, put that in the oven a low yeah. oven until they crunch up. And then so that, like with your lemon rice, like a little pile of kimchi and some crunchy nuts, delicious, maybe some sautéed greens. Yeah, oh, I'm getting sounds... hungry thinking about it. Yeah. So I would say even just one of those things would be good. But the letter writer sounds busy and I'm sure you all are. So the chicken takes honestly all of 15 minutes, if that, to get wow. in the oven. Mm-hmm. And the rice is easy and the broccoli salad is just a bit of a chopping job. But the chopping in itself is quite satisfying. You can really <laughs> chop out some frustration with your biggest board and your best knife and it's the work of minutes but it's yeah. satisfying. And you've got this big, green, healthy, delicious salad to come out of it. So, yeah, that's what I would say. <laughs> I think it sounds, that sounds delicious. And I was thinking before when you said it's bright, um, mm. it reminded me then of Ella talking about, you know, putting her, dressing her grief in Technicolor. And it just made me think of that again. Well, that, yeah, yeah. I, I was talking to mum about this as well, actually. So mum's an artist and we've done mm. this book together around the kitchen table, which is all about food and art. And both of us really believe that the two kind of go hand in hand. And you eat with your eyes. And I think she mentioned lots of pasta bakes and lasagnas, which I love, yeah. but they're kind of brown and white yes. food. So I really wanted to put in 
like the chicken goes quite orange right. and if you're going to like put lime next to it. I just wanted it to, to be visually appealing yeah. as well and just really, not that a lasagna is not a thing of beauty no, but no. a bit of a change change in pace perhaps. Yeah. Mm. And the seasons are changing too, aren't they? Yeah, so, well, that's right. Yeah. yeah, something a bit lighter. And the chicken's delicious cold, really, really good cold. And the other thing you could do, the marinade is really good on drum, drumsticks too, which are quite uh-huh. good. Like when the kids nice. are back, they just yeah. gnaw on them with one hand. So all those recipes will be in our show notes, yeah. which go to our beautiful subscribers. And now let's hear your book. I really want to hear what you've got to prescribe because I'd like to read it too. All right. Well, I was thinking actually it is a fishing letter given the year of miracles, yeah. um, isn't it? Because it's it's just a, it's another sort of grief and transition. And I like the way that Ella wrote about her friends being miracles and that ordinary lives are filled with love, pain, grief and joy. That's what it is to be alive and human. And and I felt in this letter you could see these small miracles um, alongside all the mm. sadness, stress, fear and pain of what her friend is going through. I just thought that was worth pointing out as yeah. well, that there's these little miracles that are happening, these consolations mm. <laughs> that are happening. For <laughs> oh, this I see woman. what you did there. <laughs> we'll see in a sec. Yes, so my book actually only just recently came into my orbit thanks to Nadine Ingram who was our newsletter guest in our subscriber newsletter a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, he's a friend of Sophie's. I had never heard of it before. It's called Consolations, The Solace, Nourishment and Underlying Meaning of Everyday Words and it's by David White who's an Irish poet. But this book is actually a book of mini essays on 52 everyday words Um, And those words also include emotions. The idea is that by embracing the complexity of these words, we can maybe find a different meaning. David White is just an amazing poet anyway, regardless of of this book, even if you're not really into poetry. And I used to be very scared of poetry until Sonia Sakalakis, who was uh, my friend who co-wrote Reading the Seasons with me, started sending me poems in her letters. And I suddenly realised how therapeutic and how beautiful they are well I wanted to say as well I was I felt the same way about poetry Mm. until Ella came into my world (laughs) and she talks a lot about a poet called Hera Lindsay Bird who is a Kiwi poet New Zealand poet and I have since bought um, one of her collections of poetry which actually sits next to my bed and I dip in and out of it and that's what I love about poetry it doesn't Mm. ask a lot of you you can spend five minutes on one yes and often when I read one of her poems it stays with me all day and sometimes beyond. Anyway, and I'll link to it because, yeah, her poetry is, she talks, she writes a lot about grief as well right. and losing people you love. And I feel the same way about Consolations because 52 weeks, I feel like I might read, I re- I bought it after Nadine's newsletter as yep. well, one word a week perhaps. Yes, because they're mini essays, like only two pages, and you really don't want to read too many in a row. It's And I thought the same thing for our letter writer's friend. She hasn't got the time or space to get lost in a story this book, you could just pick a word and just read that essay. You know, poetry um, can be so helpful, particularly when people are grieving, because they've only got so much space to hold onto some words in their head. And as you say, a poem can stay with you for a day or a phrase from a poem can just mm. keep replaying in your head and can bring a lot of comfort. Um, one of my favourite David White poems is called Everything is Waiting for You. And he's all about kind of looking at ways of accepting our messy selves and viewing our struggles through a different lens. And um, and he's also very much around the landscape of emotional lives and how we can enlarge that space we have. And like just this verse from Everything is Waiting for You, I really love. And I think it 
alludes to food and, and cooking as well. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. Oh, I love that. Mm. And I'll link actually in the show notes. Um, there's one of him actually speaking it and this amazing Irish lilt. You know, it's it's very nice to listen to and read the whole poem. Have you heard um, the episode of On Being with him? With yes. Mr. Tippett? Yes. We'll put that in the show notes yeah. as well. I could listen to his voice all yeah. day. And actually Naomi... In her newsletter, in our newsletter, shared he's doing a whole series of online talks on his website, ah. which I haven't subscribed to yet. But yeah, I think that would be something worth checking out yes, as well. Yes, he's, he's sort of a philosophizing poet, isn't he? Mm. But um, it, it also feels fitting in Consolations. The first essay is alone, and given the the being very alone is our letter writer's biggest concern for a friend. I thought that was also a sign that this might be a good book to read. You know, and he mm. writes about the paradox of alone and what it means to be alone and then he suggests that this time alone may be a chance to live something that feels like a choice again to find ourselves alone as a looked-for achievement not a state to which we've been condemned I hope this book will form part of a roadmap of small miracles that the letter writer and her friends are creating to help this friend miracles. Mm. what a beautiful turn of phrase actually as you're talking I didn't know that you were prescribing this Mm, book today I ordered two copies by mistake when Nadine did this. So I think we should send my second copy to our letter writer to share with her friend. We will email you and get your address because it's just sitting there. Yes, yeah, that's really. I'd like to send it on to you. They both, I got two in a row and I was like, oh, another book. I forgot I ordered that one. So we'll send you a copy of the book. There you go. As a thank you. Um, You won't be sending the food. Oh, well, (laughs) if you live in the orange area, I could drop something around, but it might be a bit tricky otherwise. I'd love to be able to do that. Wouldn't that be nice? And on that note, please keep sending letters to us. I can't guarantee you will get a book. (laughs) Yeah, or if you're an orange. But please, we really enjoy hearing from you and it's a nice challenge for us to kind of think about the right book or the right recipe and hopefully we rise to it and hopefully it resonates with our listeners and as a reminder that Mm. all these things people go through are actually we all go through in some Mm -hmm. shape or form and can be helpful at many different stages of life definitely definitely maybe feel a bit less out on your own with whatever you're going through well look that brings us to the end of today's episode while we've been talking I think the fire's gone out yeah the the sun's gone down so We'll go and stake that up. Thank you for coming to Orange, Jermaine. Oh, thank you for having me. (laughs) And thank you for listening as always, especially to our subscribers on Substack. We're always very grateful to your support, which allows us to keep recording. To our producer, Christy, Christy Reading, thank you so much, and Smith & Jones for your beautiful music. And just oh, single vineyard sellers for the wine that they send to our letter writers, which, of course, is the other Oh, yeah, well, that's a to write. huge yeah. whole case of beautiful wine. Yeah, of Highgate wine. We need to have a party with all our letter writers and all this wine and food. Wouldn't that oh, be wouldn't amazing? That be great. Yeah. Well, actually, speaking of gatherings, yes. we've got to put our skates on about this, but in November we're coming to Sydney for a gathering and we'll share it on our Instagram page very soon. We'll probably be up there by the time this episode comes out. So hopefully we can see our Sydney friends there if you're free. Otherwise, thank you for listening and take care and keep reading. And, yeah, and we'll eating. see you next month. Who knows where we'll be then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. Sometimes I get to thinking 
I ought to take up drinking just to drown out all these memories. Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle and head out on that highway just to see if it'll bring some peace. But I ain't a drinking girl. I'm just a small town woman trying to find my way in a lonesome world. And I ain't a whiskey girl. Just a small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning, my mind it starts to wander. Wanting to roam its way right out of my head And I get to thinking about that man I wonder if he's headed south again Or maybe I'll follow where that booted baby led But I am a wandering girl I'm just a small town Crooked 